me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. If you've ever watched the President of the United States give the State of the Union address, maybe you would have noticed that at some point in his speech, he'll recognize somebody in the balcony that's an ordinary citizen that he deems as a person that's a hero in society. Um, This custom actually began when President Ronald Reagan introduced a man by the name of Lenny Skutnik. Uh, To this day, all the reporters uh, leading up to the time of the State of the Union address will ask the person in charge of the media, he'll ask the question, who is the Lenny Skutnik this year? Always ask that question. Lenny Skutnik was a federal worker that was walking down the street in Washington, D.C., and he was minding his own business until the day uh, Air Florida Flight 90 crashed into the Potomac River. What had happened when the plane had taken off from Washington, D.C., the, the wings had developed ice on them. And so it barely was able to clear Washington's 14th Street Bridge before it went into the river. In the next moment, there were several passengers that were shuffling off of that airplane, trying to get into the river, trying to be rescued. And it wasn't long until there was a helicopter that showed up on site, and they dropped the ropes down from into the icy cold waters. And the thing that was interesting is that they could only save one person at a time. There were literally several, you know, hundred people that were in the waters. Specifically, there was this one lady that was a flight attendant. She was struggling to stick her arms up out of the water to reach towards the ropes, trying to get a hold of the ropes, but her arms were so cold that she couldn't lift them up. There were people that were gathered on the bridge that were yelling words of encouragement down to her in in an attempt to encourage her to grab a hold of the rope But there, she couldn't reach him. And so there was this man named Lenny Skutnik that broke through the police barricades and he dove into the water, risking his own life. He grabbed the woman, he pulled her to the shore, saving her life. Ronald Reagan identified him and said that he was a hero. Do you know what Jesus would have called him? I'm convinced that Jesus most likely would have called him a good neighbor. He would have called him a good Samaritan. You know, the good Samaritan is one of the most well-known parables in the Bible. Uh, Everybody here is familiar with it. You've heard it at one point or another. And the story is directly linked to people that are the Lenny Skutniks of the world. The people that actually have eyes to see people in need that are around them. You know, I'm convinced that we don't always understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. It's like a little boy. Uh, he had been in Sunday school class, and he had come home with his mom, and uh, his mom said, you know, what did you learn in, in Sunday school class today? And when you ask a little kid that, you don't ever, ever know what a kid's going to say. So he, the mom's like, well, what, what lesson did you learn about? He said, oh, I learned in the lesson today, it was about two pastors Two preachers that they came across a man that had been beaten up and thrown on the side of the road, and because he had already been robbed, they passed by. (laughs) And you know, for some people, that's really all you're really going to get from it. But the, the story is about so much more than just a man 
that was robbed and thrown on the side of a road. The real story that Jesus is telling in the parable is not necessarily about the man that was beaten up as it was the people that saw him on the side of the road. This story begins with a lawyer that comes to Jesus and he has a question. He's trying to trap Jesus with the question that he's going to ask. Like a lawyer, most of them would think that they can win a debate and think that they could trap Jesus up by asking a question and uh, they thought that they could trip him up. Well, when you get into this story, you recognize that it's really a bad idea to try to trip up the Son of God with a question. And it ends up backfiring on him. Now, I want us to look at the very first thing, the setting. When you come to this passage, you find that Jesus, uh, like most times, he was on a roadside probably somewhere. And uh, there's a lot of people that have gathered around him. Because Jesus would like to teach, maybe at times where he was traveling along the road and he would tell people stories. And uh, on this particular occasion, the people were gathered around him and uh, in the crowd there was a skeptic. He was a lawyer and probably it would have been easy to see that maybe around his left wrist was what they called a phylactery. It was a leather pouch that sometimes the, these, you know, these rabbis, these would actually have wrapped around their hand. It was a leather pouch that would have uh, words of scripture, maybe passages that they were remembering. Uh, they were uh, reminding themselves and memorizing. And he raised his hand and he had a question to ask Jesus. I want us to look at this passage. Look at verse 25. It says this, And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. This lawyer, this scribe, okay, it would be a better term to use the word scribe. This was a guy that spent time actually making copies of the scriptures. He was a guy that he knew his theology. He had all the training. He knew the Bible. Uh, Many of these people, uh, they they were phenomenal. They were extremely brilliant. Uh, Many of them had memorized the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So when you talk about uh, these scribes, these guys were very knowledgeable, educated. He was trained. And it says that when he came to Jesus, he came in order to tempt him, literally to trip him up in order to win a debate. He was going to try to entrap him. And his question was simple. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a very contradictory question, isn't it? You're like, Ryan, well, what do you mean by that? Well, look at his question. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? When you get an inheritance, do you normally have to do anything for that? Well, if everything's in order, you don't have to. But, uh, but what happens here is specifically is that what do I have to do to inherit it? You don't normally work in order to receive an inheritance. It's normally something that you receive. Jesus could have approached that side with him, but he didn't. Like uh, most Uh, rabbis in Jesus' day, they would answer his question with another question. That was a very typical way that rabbis would approach teaching people. Now look at what he says in verse 26. And he said unto him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? What does he mean by that? He's saying, 
you're an expert in the law. You're a guy, you, you've had all your Bible teaching. You, you know what the Bible says. How do you interpret what the law says? How is it that a person uh, receives eternal life? And so this guy that's very smart, he answers back. Look at verse 27. He says, and he answered, said, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. And then he adds the second part, and thy neighbor as thyself. He quotes what's called the Shema. The, it's literally, it, it was a thing that Jewish people quoted two times a day. There was a very familiar passage from Deuteronomy chapter 6 where it tells them that they're to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. He, he was very familiar. And by the way, did he do a good job answering? Fantastic. Fantastic answer. And then uh, he, the second part, he quotes Leviticus 19. He understood the law very, very well. He knew that if you were to go to Exodus and you were to look at the Ten Commandments, you could divide the Ten Commandments into two different parts, couldn't you? Meaning that you could divide the first part by your relationship with God. And if you could divide it into the second section is your relationship with people. And so notice what Jesus responds to his answer, verse 28. And he said unto him, thou hast answered what? Right. This do and thou shalt live. Jesus said your answer is fantastic. It's right. Now, here's the question. Some people take his answer incorrectly. They say, is Jesus teaching that we're saved by works? No. His question is, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus is telling him, if you were able to have a perfect relationship with God, and if you were able to have a, a perfect relationship with other people, then you would have eternal life. There's only one problem, right? None of us have a perfect relationship with God, and none of us have a perfect relationship with people. The lawyer should have looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, there's, there is absolutely no way that I could do that. And Jesus would have taught him about the grace that he could find in himself, in Jesus. But he didn't answer that way. Now, what happens here is that the lawyer recognizes he's trapped at this point because although he might think that his relationship with God is perfect, he's going to specifically point out one area where he doesn't feel that he measures up to what he just came out of his own mouth. He, he put up a standard that he himself couldn't measure up to. And notice what he says in verse 29 because you know what lawyers like to do, right? They like to find loopholes. I've also noticed my kids, they love to find loopholes. Uh, they're so brilliant when it comes to instructions. That's the only time they listen to me. All right. And so here's the thing is that he tries to find a loophole and what this standard that he's trying to put up. Look at what he says in verse 29. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? What does he mean by that? He means this, folks, is that he's saying my relationship with God is fantastic. Really the only area that really I'm struggling with is specifically with my neighbor, with people. And so he says he wants to find a way to make himself appear better than he actually is. So he says, well, let's get really specific here because uh, who is exactly my neighbor? Who is it that I got to love? 
Think about what his question means. He wants to know the minimum. Lord, what is the very bare minimum of what I have to do? You see, for Jewish people, and this is what they taught, Jewish people taught during their day, their neighbor was only Jewish people. It was only the people that looked like them. It was only the people that talked like them. And so when he says, Jesus, who's my neighbor? You know what he wanted Jesus to do? He wanted Jesus to get specific. And he wanted him to draw a circle, specifically a small circle, so that he only had to love people that were like him and that everybody else he could ignore. Because for the Jewish people, they taught that if you were a Gentile, or if you were a Samaritan, or if you were a sinner, then they were not your neighbor. It gave them an excuse to draw a small circle of people that they would love and they could forget about everybody else. Have you noticed that mindset in the world today? Of where people want to draw a small circle and say, I'll only love those that look like me, that talk like me, that believe everything just like me. The problem is, is that's a small circle. And Jesus begins, and he's going to give him a parable, but I want you to recognize this lawyer is being very selfish. He's focused on himself. It's like a story I heard about a little boy. His mom made this uh, incredible award-winning chocolate cake, and she put it in the refrigerator. And uh, this boy, her son, he got in and opened up the refrigerator, noticed that his brother's name was written on it. He couldn't resist. He went in and he grabbed that piece of cake, he wiped his brother's name off the top of it, and he began to stuff it down in his mouth and began to eat every single piece of it. And then his mom walked in and said, Derek, I can't believe that you ate that whole piece of cake and you didn't think about your little brother one time. And like only kids can do, looked at, back at his mom and said, well, mom, I, I actually, I did think about him the whole time. I kept worrying he was going to walk in before I finished it all. You know, just like this little boy, this lawyer was only concerned with himself and nobody else. Folks, my, uh, my heart is burdened by the fact that in our nation, we have become so self-centered and we think of nobody else. It's easy to adopt a worldly mindset in the world that we live today that's so focused on what I have what I want, that it's easy for believers to begin to adopt the same mindset of the world. You know, as we're thinking about and we're preparing for Thanksgiving and how God's blessed us, how he's given us, for many of us, we don't wonder where our next meal's going to come from. God has provided for our needs incredibly. As we were singing that song today, God has been so good to us. And the fact is, is that because he's blessed us, we should never have the mindset of what's the bare minimum that I can get by with? Who is it the people that I can pay attention to and who, who are the people that I can ignore? And Jesus begins to tell this parable that's going to redefine what a neighbor is. And folks, for us today, for us as a church body, when we begin to think about bare minimum of what we can get by with, that is a dangerous place to get as a church. We can never get to the point where we say, God, I only want to show compassion to a small few. I want to ignore the others. 
God, forgive us if we ever get that mindset. And Jesus, in this passage, he flips the lawyer's question. What I love about Jesus is he can take a question that a lawyer poses to him, and he can twist it around, turn it into a lesson, and he goes from this. The lawyer's question was this. Who's my neighbor? Jesus turns it around and makes it into this question. What kind of neighbor am I? You see how that's a very different mindset? Not who is it that I have to love, but what kind of person am I and the love that I show to people around me? It's a fantastic question. Now, what I want us to see is this, because our response to that and how we respond to people around us, it reveals the spiritual condition of our hearts. His whole point was the fact that this lawyer couldn't love his neighbor was why. He wasn't ever saved to begin with. He wasn't God's. Now, let's look at this passage And I want you to see that there's three different people that see three different things in this story, this parable. The very first group is this, the thieves that saw a victim to exploit. The thieves saw a victim to exploit. Look at verse 30. And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment, his clothing, and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, notice that I, I love Jesus' story because he, he, does he give a name? He gives no name. He gives uh, zero information about him. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know his name, his occupation, or what race. And the reason why Jesus did that was so that we could enter into the story and we could begin to feel it when we see this man gets beaten up. We don't know where he comes from. But it's a very familiar scene for Jewish people. It was a scene that they would actually resonate with them, and this is why. In their news, this specific road that led from Jerusalem to Jericho was a road where this thing that Jesus, this parable he told, actually happened all the time. It was in their news every day. This road from Jerusalem to Jericho was about 18 miles, okay, Jerusalem sits up on a hill, up on a mountain, and Jericho, it actually sits below sea level. So when they would walk this winding road from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, uh, because it was winding, it was an easy place for thieves to hide. Um, It was a drop in elevation of about 4,000 feet of difference. So it would have these huge cliffs off to the side as they would walk down the road. There would be cliffs that were as high as 400 feet on the side. And uh, so Jesus is, is using this as an illustration. The thieves love to hide out there because in Jericho, Herod had actually built three palaces there. And so wealthy people love to go to the city of Jericho, but there was one problem. The thieves like to hang out on that road. And so as he was raising this story, the people would instantly begin to think about what this road looked like as they would weave their way uh, through that and on their way down into where Jericho was at. They could instantly begin to think about what it looked like. This road actually had gained the nickname, the bloody path, because so many people had been killed along it. Now, as this man, he was traveling alone. These thieves, they jump on him and they begin to pummel him and beat him and they strip him. And now, what's important for you to know is that in the Eastern mindset, When these guys uh, were beaten up, they typically didn't do that unless you resisted them. 
So this guy was trying to keep his stuff when these thieves jumped on him. He was, he was not able to resist them. They actually, they beat him up because he refused to turn his stuff over to them, most likely. And here's this man all by himself. He's in critical condition. He's on a lonely road. He's in desperate need of help. And you see, the thieves, when they looked at this man, they saw somebody to take advantage of. You ever watch the news? You see people take advantage of other people. Our world that we live in, that's how they treat people. If somebody has something they want, what do they do? They take it from them. That's the reality of the world we live in, isn't it? Now, I want you to notice there's a second group. The priest and the Levite, they saw a problem to avoid. So the first group, the thieves, they saw a person to exploit. The second is the the priest and the Levite. And here's specifically why this is important. is because priests and Levites, what do you think of when you hear that, that title? You think of people that are religious. You're thinking of people that are what? Typically good people. Now, notice that these guys, they saw a problem to avoid. Look at verse 31. And by chance, there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, what did he do? He passed by on the other side. Think of this guy like a pastor. He was working at the temple. This guy, he, he knew the law. He knew the Bible. Uh, he actually taught other people the scriptures He knows what God expected from him, but when he saw the man, what did he do? He walked on the other side. It literally means he went the opposite way. You're like, why would would this priest see this man on the side of the road and just choose to abandon him, just to have nothing to do with him? And here's why. Some think that uh, maybe it was because if he touched a dead body, it would make him ceremonially unclean. He had just left Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jericho where his home's at. So he had probably just worked the entire week in Jerusalem and he's on his way back home. And you're like, well, what's the big deal behind that? Well, the priests, they had 24 orders of men that worked the temple. And so these priests, they would work for one week a time, two weeks of the year at the temple. And so this man's on his way home. Maybe he sat there and thought, well, man, I have had a whole week where I've been serving God in the temple and my family's waiting for me. If I have to stop and mess with this, it'll take up too much of my time. I'm ready to go home. You ever been that way when you leave work? This guy's on his way home from church and he's ready to get home. And so, surprisingly in the story, the one that you think would stop didn't. The second one is a a guy that's a Levite. Look at what it says in verse 32. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him. Now notice this Levite came actually a little bit closer. He actually, he was a little bit better than the priest, all right? He, He actually actually went over and checked on how he was doing. But notice, and it says, and he passed by on the other side. This was like a worship minister, like David over here. This guy was, he had led music, he, had, he was in charge of taking care of the temple complex, and he was underneath the priest, and this guy is, it indicates that when he went by, he actually went over and checked on him to see how he was doing. But he noticed, uh, who knows what he saw, but he decided to do what? He walked on the other side 
And why would he do that? Well, it was very common in their day that when thieves would actually wound somebody and leave them by the road, that sometimes it was a decoy. They would leave him there so that if somebody came and stopped to check on him, what would they do? They would rob that person too. So maybe this Levite, as he approached him, he was like, this is a dangerous situation. I could be attacked here, so I'll just leave him there. Or maybe he thought, he's too far gone. There's nothing that I can do at this point. You see, both of these men, folks, and this is where I want to get your attention. Were they religious? Yeah, they were. Did they serve God? Yeah, they just came back from the temple. Did they know who God was? They knew him. They served him. They actually taught other people the word. But when it comes to this point, the two men that you think should have responded were the very fact that these two men that had absolutely nothing to do with him, they passed by on the other side and had nothing to do with him. Do we ever have excuses on why we don't help people? Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I never knew a man to refuse to help the poor who failed to give at least one admirable excuse. What excuses could they have given? Let me go through a list, all right? Now stick with me because some of you guys are, you're going to be right in the same boat like myself. Notice what he says. Or, or, uh, here's some excuses that he could use. I'm too busy. I've helped people already. I don't know him. It could be a trap. Someone else will do it. I've already served. I'm tired. The last time I did this, it didn't work out very good. My family's expecting me home. I'll call 911 when I get to Jericho. He probably deserved it. He was walking by himself. And folks, before we know it, we no longer see the person that's in need. We've ignored them. You see, the irony is this, is that these were men that spent their entire days, listen folks, worshiping God, but it never changed the way that they saw people. Folks, my burden is this. We can do all kinds of good things for God. We can worship, we can, we can tithe, we can give, we can serve in a church, but folks, if it doesn't change the way that you see people, it hasn't impacted you fully yet. You see, it's against this backdrop that makes their failure so great. They were people that knew God, but it didn't change the way that they saw people. And folks, that's my concern is that that would happen to us. It's like uh, I was reading an article this week as I was preparing this message and, and there was this Bible school where they had a project and this was their project. Your job this week is to take the passage of the Good Samaritan, break it down into Greek and tell us what you got from the story. Now, the professor had other plans, so what he did was he took one of the students from his class and he said, I want you to dress up like this man that was beaten up. And so they took him, they tore his clothes because they didn't want to leave him naked at a Bible school. And so what they did was that they took his clothes, they tore them, uh, they took mud, put it all over him, and they took ketchup and they put it on his face, and they put him outside the school building so that the next day, when the students came in, they would see him. That day as the students walked into their classroom, they saw this guy that had appeared to look like he had been beaten up. And surprisingly, absolutely not even one student stopped to check on him. 
When the students got into the classroom, the professor began to tell them, you knew the whole passage, you even broke it down in its original language, but you failed to miss to see the person that was outside the building. Folks, listen, in all of our, our, our dealings and being religious and, and being good people and, and showing up to church and, and singing songs and getting into God's word together, don't miss the fact that it's not just about religious duty, folks. It's about allowing God to grip your heart, to see people differently, to see people the way that God sees them. The Bible says in 1 John 3, 16 and 17, it says this, hereby we perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and sees his brother have need, but look, and shuts up his bowels of compassion, literally closes off his heart so that he has no compassion. How does the love of God dwell in him? What does he mean by that, folks? It means that how does a person that has experienced the grace and the goodness of God and has experienced his forgiveness shut off his heart so that other people can't receive the goodness and the grace of God just like them? How does God's love dwell in a person like that? And folks, listen, God forgive us for looking at people as a problem as opposed to, notice this last section, the Samaritan saw a, a neighbor to minister to. A neighbor to minister to. Look at verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Folks, if you would have been in the crowd that day when Jesus was giving the parable, and he said the word Samaritan, you know what people would have done? They would have gasped. The people that were listening to Jesus' parable, they would have thought, oh, this is the guy that's going to finish him off. That's what they would have thought. Now, it says that this Samaritan, it comes. Now, why was it that the Jews hated him so much? You have to understand the background of what's happening in the passage. The Samaritans, they were the ones that lived up in the northern Israel before. They were the northern kingdom. And when Assyria came in and attacked them, they carried them off and they actually sent some of their people back and they intermarried with the Assyrians so that uh, the Samaritans were half Jews, half Assyrian. You're like, well, what's the big deal with that? Well, eventually what happened in the south was Judah was carried off by Babylon and when Ezra came back and he began to rebuild the temple, you know what happened? The Samaritans came to him and said, can we help you rebuild the temple? And they said, no, no. So the Samaritans actually went to another location to Mount Gerizim and they built themselves a temple on top of that mountain. And this is what happened. They began to worship there and the Jewish people actually eventually went and they attacked and destroyed it and actually killed some Samaritans that were there. So there was this bitter rivalry so this is what happened. In the time of Jesus' day, uh, what happened was is that the Samaritans were pro-Rome. They were all about the Romans. They liked them. And as a result, the, the Romans actually had given them benefits. And so what happened was this. There was a time right before the Passover where Samaritans, they came in and they broke into Jerusalem and they put bones within their temple. That's a major problem right before Passover. They had to shut down the whole temple for all of Passover meal. 
They hated each other. Jews that walked from Judea up to the north, they actually walked around Samaria so they wouldn't have the Samaritan dust on their sandals. That's how bad they hated each other. If you have to walk extra, by the way, folks, right? If you have to walk extra in order to avoid them, you really hate them. Now, by Jewish definition, when this Samaritan comes along the way, by definition, he was not a neighbor, not a neighbor. Now, this is where I want your, your, your attention. If I could get you for this part. Notice what he happens. The very difference is that, listen, folks, three people saw the same man, but only one had compassion. Notice what it says. When he saw him, he had compassion on him. Something moved inside of his heart that when he saw him, his heart was broken. This man that was faceless and colorless, this Samaritan began to imagine, folks, listen, this is why we don't have compassion like we ought to. He began to imagine what it would be like to be him. Folks, compassion is the ability to enter into somebody else's hurt, somebody else's problem. Compassion is not just feeling bad for somebody. This guy, when he looked at him, maybe he began to think, this is somebody's son. What if he was my son? What would I want to happen to him? What if it was me? And folks, so many times when we look at people, what do we do? We begin to say, well, they probably deserved it. And folks, as a result, we don't begin to feel what we should feel for that person. We no longer hurt. And when this Samaritan saw him and he was moved, it was one life connecting with another life. Compassion doesn't just feel something, it actually acts. It begins to move. Look at what he does in verse 34. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set on his own beast, and brought him to an end and took care of him. Now, folks, this is where it's absolutely fantastic. You might circle that word where it says he went to him. That word kata literally means this. It means to kneel down over him, to get down on your knees. Folks, literally to come down to his level. This man, a Samaritan, kneels down and it says that he bound up his wounds. Folks, the only clothing he probably, he would have had his own clothing and he began to tear his own clothes to make a tourniquet to begin to fix his wounds. He tore his own clothes for him. Notice it says that he took wine and he poured it on it. You know why? It's an antiseptic. It would clean the wound. And it says that he took oil and he put it on it. It would literally soothe it so that it would feel better. Now, folks, follow along. That word pour here is the word lavish. Listen, he was using his own resources that he had been given. And you know what he began to do? He didn't dab it on lightly because it was his, all the resources that he had on his trip was this. And he began to pour it on lavishly to take care of his needs. And folks, it was somebody he didn't know. Look at verse 35. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence and he gave it to the host. And he said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more. When I come back again, I'll what? Folks, say it with me. I'll do what? Let's try one more time. I'll do what? I will. I'll repay him. 
The thing that's incredible is that it would have taken an incredible amount of sacrifice. Notice that on the next day he came to the, uh, he left the inn. That means that all night he did what? He took care of him. When it says that he paid two denarii, listen, that's two days' wages. And literally, it would take care of his needs for probably, most scholars think, probably three and a half weeks. It would provide for all of his needs inside that, that inn. And the fact is, folks, that when you look at it, the Samaritan, if you were going to pick between a priest, a Levite, and a Samaritan, this is the least likely person to respond to the need. The other two were religious and knew God, and that's what makes what the Samaritan did so incredible. He doesn't even know him. He had all the excuses of all the other two guys, but didn't use them. And the Samaritan, the outcast, the enemy, he never had any thought of, is he my neighbor? Never had any thought, does he qualify? Folks, he just met the need. So, folks, we've seen the setting. We've seen the this, this story. Now, I want you to notice this last part, and we're going to be done. I want you to see the summary. Folks, Jesus had a way to draw people into the story, and then right at the very end, he would hit them with the truth. Folks, this is where Jesus begins to ask a penetrating question that if you'll allow it, it ought to break your heart. In this story, Jesus, at this point, he goes from a, a road that led to an inn that was in Jericho. He brings the people back to where Jesus was at teaching on a road. And he brings them back to their time, their day, and the people that they were around. And this is what he does. Look at what he says in verse 36. Which now of these three do you think was a neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? Which one do you think was his neighbor? Which one was the one that showed concern for him? Folks, you notice what Jesus did, right? The original was question was this, who's my neighbor? Now Jesus is forcing everybody in the crowd, he's forcing this scribe, this lawyer to answer the question of, what kind of neighbor am I? What kind of person am I? You see, the real question isn't uh, what kind of, uh, what's the bare minimum, but what, what would God have me to do? That's the real question. What type of person am I? Now notice the answer. Look at verse 37, and I want you to notice what's left out. And he said, he that showed mercy on him and then said Jesus unto him, go and do likewise. Notice what happens. When he answered which one showed compassion, which one was the neighbor, he couldn't even say the word what? Samaritan. He couldn't even say it. He hated him so much. Now, he couldn't even say it, uh, and he, what he's saying is, Jesus says, you're right, go and do likewise. Here's the point, folks. The Samaritan is the only one that saw him and had compassion. And folks, listen, I want you to look up this way. Here uh, on the front of our stage, we have all of these bags. 
They represent people, faces, people that are in our community. Though you, we don't have pictures to put up on the screen, they represent families in our community. And you know, there's three ways that we could look at them. Just like these people, we could look at them as people to take advantage of. Well, they're, they're where they're at. They'll work their job. They can just, we'll just get something from them. There's some people that look at them and they think, man, these are a problem of our society. They're problems to avoid. They're not even worth our time. I'm busy. I got stuff to do. But there's other people that will look at them and they'll say, they're people to minister to. You see, you're like, Ryan, what, what's this whole thing about? This is what it's about. You see, the good Samaritan is a model, a goal to, to try to achieve. It's not a goal for how to get into God's kingdom, how to be saved. It's actually, it's, it's not for getting into the kingdom, but it's a representation of a child of the kingdom. Let me say that another way. Uh, children of God's kingdom, they don't get into heaven by compassion. They're revealed by their compassion. Big difference. You see the people that are a part of God's kingdom, they're the ones that have experienced God's grace. You're like, Ryan, uh, let me try to draw it in this way. You see, one of the things that we can do with this story is we look at this story and we think, oh, that's wonderful. It's a great story about this, the, this Samaritan that helps this person in need. That's so long ago. That's, that's not like the, our times. Listen, the story of the good Samaritan is a story about you. You're like, what do you mean? It's a picture of the gospel. How? Well, folks, we, like that man that left Jerusalem and were on a journey to Jericho, we left God and turned our back on him. And ever since we left him, it was on a, a downward decline ever since. We were the ones that were walking down the road, and sin and Satan pummeled us and left us for dead. We were dead and we looked for somebody to help us. And when we looked to Jesus Christ, Jesus came down. He left heaven and he came down to where we were at and he ministered to our wounds. He took the wounds that belonged to us and he put it on himself. And not only that, but he took our debt that we owed and he paid it. When everybody else would pass us by, he got down and he took care of our needs. He ministered to us. And those of us that have experienced his grace and his goodness and his compassion are ones that should be changed and forever impacted by the gospel and say, I want people to experience the grace and the compassion that I found. You know, I read a story about a woman in this small city. There's a story about a man that also worked inside of a shoe store. It was in Europe. It was during wintertime. It was extremely cold outside. This man that worked inside the shoe shop, he looked outside and he saw that across the road, there was a little boy that had no socks and shoes on. He was standing outside of a bakery where there was a grate that was pushing out hot air and the little boy, he stood as close to it as he could so that his feet wouldn't freeze. 
this shoe clerk, as he looked outside and he saw the boy, he, he wasn't sure exactly what he should do. But he noticed that when he looked out, there was all kinds of people that were walking by this little boy. And he noticed that nobody was looking at him and nobody paid any attention. Until, out of nowhere, there was this elderly lady that she saw the boy. And he said that this woman, she got down on her knees and she wrapped her arms around this little boy and gave him a hug and whispered something in his ear. And she saw that that little boy instantly got a smile on his face. The woman walked him across the street into the shoe store where this man was working. And she bought him shoes and socks and put it on his feet. And the shoe clerk said that he asked, the little boy asked that woman one question. Are you God's wife? The woman said, I'm not his wife. I am his child. The little boy said, I knew you had to be related to him. Folks, a child of God is seen in the fact that their life has been impacted by God's grace and his mercy. And when they've experienced that, they in turn show that same grace and mercy to other people. That's how we're known. Believers reveal that we belong to him by the way we choose to see people, the way we choose to act with mercy and compassion and, and love in the name of, of and for the glory of our good Samaritan, Jesus Christ. You see, the problem, folks, is this. We have all of these folks here, and, and I don't, today I don't want to guilt anybody into doing anything. Let the Holy Spirit do what he wants to do. But folks, I want to ask that as you would stand up, even right now, just stand to your feet where you're at. And I want to ask that you would keep your eyes closed, keep your head bowed. And my concern is this. We have plenty of thieves that just try to take advantage of people. We have plenty of priests. We have plenty of Levites that look at people as problems. My question is this, where are the Samaritans? What I want to do to close this service is that we have bags that are down here. We have names of people. And what I want us to do today is this, is that if God leads or puts it on your heart, I understand not everybody can go out and make a visit. I totally understand that. Some of us can't do that. But there's not a person in here that couldn't pray for the people. We have our pastors stationed down here up front. If God puts it on your heart to come forward and begin to pray for some of these names, as we're going to go out and bring the gospel to them. They're people with needs. And God wants us to have compassion.